So a number of years ago, I was serving as a youth minister down in the Rio Grande Valley, and a church in that area contacted me because they were looking for a youth minister. They weren't looking for me. They were just looking for some help finding somebody, but also they, were, they had scheduled a retreat, and they needed somebody to lead it. They didn't know who to contact, so they called me, and I said, okay, I'm happy to do it. They told me that it was a retreat for teenagers to be held at South Padre Island, and I said, okay, I'll suffer for the Lord. I'll go do that. Uh, I encountered something on that retreat that uh, never since nor before had I encountered. They told me as I went to prepare for that, that uh, there was a kid who was going to be attending that who was really not a church kid. As a matter of fact, he started dating or had an interest in dating one of the kids in that youth group. And so he was coming uh, on that trip as a way to try to make inroads with her. And they warned me that he was a very tough case. Bad family life, pretty much lived on the streets, had a serious attitude. And uh, I said, not a problem. And um, so when we started to get things ready to load up to leave, I walked over to this kid because he was not hard to pick out. Those non-church kids sometimes stand out in church groups. And I went over to him and I said, hey, my name's Mark and uh, nice to meet you. And he screwed up that face and he got this king-size attitude and he looked at me and his first words to me were, you got a problem? Now, I'm not going to tell you what I thought, um, but I will tell you that uh, my best answer to that was yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I want to throw the question to you, but I want to do it less as a confrontational question and more as a searching question to you and give you the opportunity to step out of some of the clutter of a day and be really honest. Do you have a problem? I think probably the reality is that all of us, if we got really honest, would have to say, yeah, there are some things in my life that um, are bothering me. The road trammel, I've tried to give you some road trammel family mottos as we've gone through. Uh, I'm now well into my fifth year, and I don't know that I've used this one with you yet. So um, let me give you another part of your How Not to Be According to the Road Trammels uh, book. I might have gotten an answer if I had said that to some people in my family, they probably would have said this to me. You have problems? Life's a rock and then you die. Now, the problem with those road travel sayings is there's usually some truth tied to them. And there's some truth to that one. Life's a rock, and then you die. That's biblical, by the way, as we'll see before we get through this passage today, that there are those things in life that just are going to be difficult for you. What is your problem today? And maybe a good follow-up question to that one is, what are you doing with your problem? Because there's always some kind of a default approach that we have when trials or tribulations, to use a church word, come our way. We, we all have this kind of default way. Some people just absolutely fall apart. Some people use it as an opportunity to kind of just kind of dig in and attack it and they thrive off of the energy of the crisis. 
How do you handle the crises, the trials of your life? I want to get you to memorize two statements with me here before we start today. Now, they're not that hard, all right? So I know that it's Labor Day weekend and we're kind of settled in and holiday mode, but uh, give me about 10 minutes here. Uh, Who am I kidding? 40 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. But I want you to memorize these two statements. Actually, it's a statement and a question as we start. Under the umbrella of dealing with the trials and the tribulations of our lives, memorize these two things. Here's the first one. This is a test. You got it? It's simple. This is a test. Here's the second one. It's the question. Where's God in this? So two things I've asked you to memorize. Let's see how you're doing. What's the first one? Yes, it is. That's why I'm asking you, what's the first one? This is a test. The second one, where's God in it? All right. So uh, I kind of floated this uh, out last night, social media, just to kind of get some of you thinking about what we were going to be doing here today. And I used that age-old dilemma that's formed in a question that I hear, especially when we go through trials and major difficulties in our life, why does bad stuff happen to good people? I'd like to definitively answer that today so that you never have to ask the question again. But let me start with this. If I understand Scripture correctly, and I think I do at this point, there is no such thing as a good person. I know that that is a little abrasive for us, But scripture is very clear that we all are born with a sin nature. And by definition, we're not good people. Now you may be good morally and you may have a good ethic that you follow in your life. But when it boils down to it, none of us are so inherently good that we deserve nothing bad to happen to us. And even if we were, we're still going to have bad stuff happen. So let's see what James has to say to us here. Two things I've asked you to memorize. This is a test And where's God in this? Let me walk through these couple of verses this morning, three verses to be exact. And what I'd like to do is bring some clarification to some of the terminology and some of the way we think about trouble and how we face it in our life. And here's the first one. We need to make sure that we understand the value of perspective when it comes to the trials of our lives. James begins, this is verse 2. James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your translation may say patience. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James starts off in an interesting kind of a way here for us, and it pushes us at the point of perspective. Let me see if I can highlight how important perspective is in our lives. I'm going to say it this way and then I'll try to illustrate it. Perspective has a way of interpreting the landscape of your life. Now you need to hear me say this. Just because that's your interpretation doesn't make it real. For instance, what is this? Right here. I think I've done this in this service before. What is this right here? I hear a vote for podium. Anybody want to say something different? Because I hadn't heard the right answer yet. Huh? 
Plexiglass, okay, that's close, but still not right. A pulpit, that's close, still not right. A stand, that's not even close to being right. It's my wife, I'm giving her a hard time. Okay. A shield, <laughs> if I keep asking these questions, I'm going to have to use it as a shield. Right? Any, anybody with any kind of awareness and education knows this is a peacock. Right? Well, who says it's wrong? If I say this is a peacock, actually, it's not a peacock, it's a 357. Or 698. Or a dog. Or a green plant. I can decide in my mind that this is whatever I want it to be. And as far as my perspective is concerned, that's what it is. So when I believe that this is a peacock and you say that it's a stand, who's wrong, really? All right, now here's what I want you to get from that. Because this, by the way, this is one of the main problems in America today as it relates to how we perceive what's going on. If I can convince myself that the situation is what it, what it is, then you, by definition, are wrong if you don't agree with me. You know what we call that in theological terms? We, we call that the God complex. I'll decide, I'll make the rules, I'll do this, and it must be right because it's right to me. How does that impact the way we deal with our problems? And the trials that come our way. You know, in the first 27 verses of this little letter called James, in the first 27 verses, 17 different times, James will talk about perception and perceiving and knowing something. 17 times in 27 verses. In the last 81 verses of this letter, only seven times. What he does with us from the outset with this is he forces us to come to grips with our perceptions in life. And in particular, at this point, our perceptions of how we understand the bad stuff that happens to us. Let me turn that just a little bit and say this, that we need to understand that before we ever act, we perceive, we think, and then we base our actions on those thoughts. So with whatever it is that is coming your way today, how do you handle that? How do you perceive that? Here's a great truth for you. Our perspective on trials empowers us in trials. How we see the battle empowers us in fighting the battle if we're doing it in the right kind of way according to what James is going to teach us here. So let me just stop before I move on to the next thing of clarity here. Let's make sure we got this one. How do you perceive the problems of your life? Those trials and those things that come at you, how do you understand those things? I'm always intrigued when we get to really catastrophic events, whether it's in a family's life, an individual, or maybe even on the national scale. Take it back to 9-11, that 
anniversary is coming around, and I, I flash back to then and since then, and how could God let that happen? You see, that's a perception. That's different than how come God would make that happen. You see what I'm saying in the perception here? It's a, it's a small step, but it's a huge consequence for us. So how do you perceive those trials that come at you? Is it because God is mad at you? Is it just a matter of course that God somewhere is asleep on duty and he didn't know and it snuck up on him? And All of those are perceptions. So here's the perception I want you to get. You remember the first thing I wanted you to memorize? This is a test. So the perception we start with, and we're going to find this all through this little three-verse section of James's letter, and actually he'll come back and he'll revisit it later throughout the course of this letter. But the perception is that this trial that we're going through is a test. How do you see that test? That's the first thing. Let's look at the second one. We get more into the text now. It is this word trial. What exactly constitutes a trial? The, the church word we use often is tribulation. We don't use that in normal day life. It's, I got a problem. I, I, I got this situation and it's eating my lunch and it's tearing us apart. And it might be a medical condition. It may be a relationship breakdown. It may be any number of things in your particular life, but we all have those things that come at us and, and they threaten our sense of control. You see, that's part of the definition that we're working with here. That's part of the term and what's behind it. When James says to us, count it all joy when you encounter these trials, that trial is that thing that pushes into your life that seems to threaten your sense of control. But actually, it's bigger than that. One commentator said this about this term. These are the pressures that are applied against believers that threaten their well-being which may very well cause them to doubt the sovereignty of God. Does that begin to bring it in a little better uh, uh, focus for you? There are those battles, those problems, those situations in life that so push us into the awareness that we're not in control that we begin to even question whether God is in control or charge or not. If you don't have one of those situations in your life currently being fought, let me just encourage you to buckle up because there's one coming. It is the nature of life. And as a matter of fact, that's part of the way he writes this. When you meet, or some translations will say when you fall into trials of various kinds, he he just kind of gives us a nice little word picture of this little section where he highlights the fact that there are those things in life that It's not so much that we go out and search for them, although we are certainly capable of going out and finding trouble. But he's talking here about those things in life that seem to just fall into our laps. It's like we just encounter them, and all of a sudden, there they are. Happened to me one time years ago now. Praise God it was years ago, because it was of such magnitude in my life that it nearly killed me and nearly killed my marriage. Um, We were on a trip doing God's work 
I was going to a church in Central Texas. I just graduated from school in Plainview, and we were headed down to Bangs, Texas, uh, to see about being on staff at a church there. And this cold front had blown through, and it was wicked cold. And Brandon was just uh, a couple of years old, and, and we were driving down. And all of a sudden, Teresa starts making weird noises over on the passenger side. And I started smelling antifreeze, and I looked down, and we have antifreeze pouring into the passenger floorboard of my car. And so I told her, just suck it up. We've got places to go. That didn't work. And so ultimately I had to pull over and I had to bypass the heater core because we found out through the course of it all that the heater core was leaking. And so I just bypassed the heater on the side of the road and then we went on and did our thing. All right. But, but see, that's one of those, it just encountered, I just encountered it. There it was. That's part of the word picture here. But remember what I said, these are those things that push us out of our own control. And they can be of such magnitude that they even cause us to question the sovereignty of God. And so in this particular issue, I finished that process. Uh, By the way, it's it's an interesting thing when the temperature is hovering in the single digits, uh, not to have a defroster or anything like that for your car. Uh, and that was our situation. And so the whole drive home was, was dangerous. And it was one of those things. I was in constant stress and I was in control and, you know, the, how all of that stuff goes. So we get back to Odessa and I was talking to her dad about it. He said, you know what, let's just take it down. I'll have it fixed for you. Yes. So we go to the mechanic's place and the mechanic says, that's going to cost you $500. Now, this was a long time ago. $500 was a lot more than $500. And I told him, I said, I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'll just change it myself. And that was my wife laughing at me. She knows this story. Okay, so one problem, heater core goes out, leads to another one, and that is it's really too expensive to do. I'll just do it myself. My father-in-law, out of the goodness of his heart, bought the heater core, 30 bucks or something like that. So we drive back to the panhandle. And so for the next two and a half weeks, I'm trying to do finals at school and change the heater core in this car. I figured out why they charged $500 at the mechanic's place. I had to ultimately had to take stuff off of the firewall on the engine side. I had to take the whole dash out. And I was standing on my head, reaching up in there, you know, contortionist trying to get this one bolt. And through the course of all of that, my religion just blossomed. I was... I was praising the Lord out there, singing. No. During the process of that in in the panhandle, okay, now you see how these start stacking up? One problem after another after another, so I'm having trouble getting it done. And then that's not enough trouble for me, so I start getting an attitude with my wife. And so she comes, uh, I forgot one of the big other problems, and that is this cold front blew in on top of the other one, one of those blue northers. I didn't know what that was until then. And it dropped, the temperature just nosedived. So I'm out there, because we didn't have a garage, we had a carport, and I'm outside working on it, the doors are open because I'm trying to get the dash out, and it starts snowing. And it's blowing snow into the area where I'm working. And it's piling up. And I'm a happy camper by now. And Teresa feels bad for me, so she brings some hot chocolate or coffee or something like that. And I told her, in no uncertain terms, never mind. Um, 
So now I have marriage problems on top of car trouble. You with me? You see how little situations or maybe big situations have this way of just snowballing on us. And how we respond to those problems drives us into other problems or into solutions. So I'm going to go back to that first point of clarification. The perspective that we bring to the problems in life is really important that we get this. Now he defines these trials for us. Anything, anything that pushes us where we sense this loss of control and it even threatens the sovereignty of God. You don't have to go looking for those things. You'll find them if you go looking. They'll just come to you. That's the word that... James uses here is these trials, we fall into them. It's the exact same word from the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that where this guy fell into this group of thieves and robbers? And then on top of that, he refers to it as this variety of all kinds, all sorts of trials. If you take over this course of this week, go to Coons for lunch one day and go to Mama Jack's and you walk in there and they got a lunch buffet spread out there, you can pick and choose what you want to eat. That's kind of the picture here. You got a smorgasbord of problems of all kinds, financial, relationship, etc. So before we go any further, let's stop and wear the truth of this quickly. What's going on in your life right now? Is there anything in your life right now that fits the description of what he's saying? You come in here and it's even difficult to listen or to be involved and people try to talk to you and there's that attempt at fellowship and connection going on and there's that part of you that just wants to just shut everything off and seal yourself off because the pain and the stress of what you're dealing with is just too big. How are you doing with that? How are you dealing with that? What's your perspective on that? So that now pushes us to that second thing that I wanted you to memorize. The first one is this is a test. The second one is where's God in this? Which pushes us to the third one as we dive towards the finish line. He says count it all joy. We we really do need to kind of dig on this a little bit because I think that there is this wrong perspective uh, that we bring to our troubles and even in our Christianity. Let me, I really would rather say it in our religiosity. We think there are proper ways for us to pull this off. Count it all joy. I call it humanistic Christianity. It's that bumper sticker theology, folk religion kind of stuff that just says, okay, so I've got to count it all joy, so I'm just going to plaster it on my face. It's all good. I just lost everything, but it's all good. You know what? That's crazy. Don't pull that with me. Okay? Just be honest. You, Teresa, um, it's fun watching my wife and her family. Um, Teresa's pretty sharp, and you don't, she doesn't miss much. 
And when she was a little girl, her mother, when she would get sick or her sisters would get sick, one of the things her mother would say to her was, you just go put your makeup on, honey, you'll feel better. So now I love listening to Teresa say to her mom, just go in there and put on your makeup, you'll feel better. Okay? Uh, you know what that is? That might work, and it didn't work with her on raising children, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, so many Christian people hear these kind of statements from Scripture. They go, oh, okay, so I just got to put on my church makeup and I'll feel better. That's crazy. That, that's not what he's talking about here. What is he talking about here? To count is a calculation term, a an accounting term, if you will. It's to reckon. It's to make a decision after weighing all of the facts and all of the circumstances. So what James is saying here is that perspective that you bring to your problems, those things that the world or has just dropped into your lap, those things that you encounter, first of all, count it up. Study it. Be a thinking Christian. After the first service... I was talking to some of our members and one person talked about somebody who they used to work with who wore a button that says, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And this person said, that just kind of flew all over me whenever they wore that button. She said, was I wrong about that? I said, no, I'm right there with you. That's one of those bumper sticker things. It might sound good, but it could be really empty, hollow Spirituality. Can I give you permission to be upset when you got bad stuff happening to you? I don't know where we got this idea that Christians have to just suck it up and you know be thick-skinned and all that kind of stuff. Life hurts sometimes, doesn't it? Or is that just me? So call it what it is. Own the pain of the situation. He says, count it. Look at it. A mental calculation, this hurts. But, and this is where we get to that folk Christianity, I think. It, it, it's, instead of just plastering it on, I, you know, I told you before, I think, that I was a cheerleader dad, right? Lauren was a cheerleader growing up. I was the only male in a bleacher full of cheerleader moms. You want to talk about trials? I can give you trials. One of the things, you know, if you're a cheerleader, God bless you, I love you. Okay, my daughter did it a long time. Okay, I was right there. I know what a herky is and I could do one. I won't do one, but I could. But one of the things that I just hated about cheerleaders, and I get the name is cheerleaders, but it was that they put on these fake masks and they walk around like, as long as they're in uniform, you got to be smiling. <laughs> oh, just be real. So this joy thing, it's written as an adverb. So we might translate it, consider it entirely as joy. It's not an emotion, it's a state of being. It's that awareness after counting the cost and looking in and studying the trials that you have and checking your perspective on it that it allows you to step back and say, okay, well, I don't know that we've totally got there yet, but this ties into that first part of what I ask you to memorize. This is a test. How can you see trials and tribulations as 
entirely his joy? It's more than just the makeup thing. It's more than just some suck it up and, and be happy about it kind of thing. This is a natural state of delight. You know, some people would look at it and go, that's crazy to approach big troubles that way. I'm going to tell you something. I, too, so many times as a pastor, I've walked into homes or hospital rooms or funeral homes with people who are going through catastrophic life events. They don't need me to walk in there and act like everything's all honey and no bees. Sorry. Sometimes we just need to call it what it is. But we can't lose sight of what James is saying here. This is written as a way, do this. It is an imperative kind of a statement. It's, this is how to be. Count it as entirely joy. You know, the guy, I, I get this every once in a while, people come, how you doing? Well, one of the ways that I like to watch, I, sometimes I'll say, well, under the circumstances, I'm okay. I don't do that much anymore because one guy said to me, he said, how you doing? I said, well, under the circumstances, I'm all right. He said, well, what are you doing under there? Look with me. Hold your place here and go to John chapter 16. I want to see if we can't clarify this from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus, if you're just looking for good devotional reading, uh, take about six months and work your way through John 14, 15, 16, and 17. John 16, Jesus is having this discussion with his disciples. They're about to go through some trials because he's about to go to the cross and everything they've banked on is going to be challenged. And so in the process of that discussion, Jesus has this statement, John chapter 16, beginning in verse 20, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from me. And so Jesus, in this statement to his disciples, gives them a heads up. This is coming. People around you are going to be happy because I'm going to be gone, and you're going to be sorrowful. And that's a trial beyond what they could have even dreamed was coming, but his promise to them was there comes through that this sense of joy because the process itself will not stop in the negative situation. Maybe the best way for us to get a handle on this part of what James is saying is to recognize over in Galatians 5, you remember that passage? But the fruit of the Spirit is love and unhappiness and... No, that's not right. What is it? The fruit of the Spirit is love Joy, hear me say this, to be true to what James is saying here, you cannot work up this kind of joy in the face of your trials. You can't work it up. That's humanistic Christianity if you can. This is strictly a move of the Spirit of God. We sang about power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That last, the next to last song that we sang today just kind of thrust that onto us. 
You're facing trials today, and I know many of us are. Tough, tough stuff. The good news for you is that God is in the midst of that. This is a test. Where's God in that? Somewhere in the middle. Greg Blomberg says that this all joy is an, unnat- an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated trust in God. Where do you find that sense of joy, a sense of being, that just slipping into a point of living in the face of that trial? It's when you can put your trust in God. Where's God in this? This is where many Christians break down because of loss of perspective. They can't get to the joy part of it because they're focused on the trouble. And if that's you, and you know that's your struggle, then go back to the previous word. Count. Study it. Look at it. Find God in it. Which leads me to the last one. Verse 3 and 4 help to clarify for us because it gives us the perspective that we need to face these trials with joy. And it's centered in God's purpose and an awareness of that purpose. We read verse 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, patience is okay as a translation, but steadfastness has a better picture for us. It captures the word picture. It is this picture of one who faces trouble and yet seems to get through it. Did you see the movie last year about Louis Zamperini? He was the guy who was kind of had a tough upbringing, kind of a no-good kid, getting in trouble a lot, became this Olympic runner. World War II came along, and so he joined the service, and he was uh, spent time, shipwreck if I remember right, and he was in a raft for all these days out and you know, one struggle after another that just fell into his lap and then of all things the Japanese rescued him from that life raft and he was a POW and it was just one problem after another in his life. It's a great book to read, Unbroken is the name of it. And he is the picture of this for us. It is that sense of standing strong in the face of the storm as those wind and waves come at you. It's standing strong as hard as it is. I'm going to hold on in this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then verse 4 clarifies it further. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word there means mature. So what James has done for us is he's laid out this perspective on the trials of life. Why does bad stuff happen to good people? The answer to that is tied to the reality that God is not ever going to be content to let you stay at the level that you are in your life right now. Don't miss that. We get comfortable at the level we're at. We, we settle into these life routines and it's just cool. Okay, so now I don't, I don't have to work so hard at it, don't have to think so hard because my routine is such. But God is never going to be satisfied with us just kind of settling into the Christian life and being comfortable. 
I've said it many times here and I'll continue to say it. God is much more concerned about your growth than he is about your comfort. And so those trials that come, the ones that you just kind of run into or they run into you, God is present in those things for the purpose of making you mature. And at first, we encounter those things, and they're very difficult for us. But the picture here is that we gradually get better at them as we grow. Picture, if you will, those stone steps that people put in their yard. Sometimes it goes from the driveway around to the front, and it's not just continuous sidewalk. It's just stones that are placed there, and then there's grass between that one and the next one. And you should go from one stepping stone to the next to get up to to the house. For me... As a guy who's at least 30 years old, those are not too hard. But for my three-year-old, almost three-year-old granddaughter, those things are incredibly far apart. And it's hard for her to stretch and get there. That's the picture for us. And so God grows us by allowing these storms and these trials into our lives so that we might mature. The promise all along, though, is that he is there with us. And so the question that I've asked you to memorize, where's God in this, is a centering question. It's a perspective-building question for you. It's not that God's not there and you've got to find him. It's that God is there and you can't miss him. It is a refining process, these trials are. I'll close with this. A number of years ago, these ladies, true story, were studying over in the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, there's this verse, a couple of verses says, but who can endure the day of God's coming and who can stand when he appears? Listen to this. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And so they were talking about this refining process and in that... This one lady was enough of a student. She said, I don't really understand all that. I think I get it. But she determined she was going to do some research. And in her research, she found that there was a guy, a silversmith, who lived relatively close to where they were. And she said, I'm going to go to him and I'm going to sit down with him and let him tell me what that verse means. And so she did. And she made an appointment. She went and sat down with him. And he began to explain to her. And he took her back to his shop and began to explain to her the process of refining silver. And so, you know, to make it simple for us, he puts it under fire. And that fire begins to melt that metal. It's an extremely high temperature, and he melts that metal down, and the impurities in that silver begin to rise to the surface. He says, so when it rises to the surface, I just skim it off. And she said, so when, when you skim it off, then it's done, right? And he said, no, it's not done until, now hear this, He said, it's not done refining until I can see my own reflection in the silver. That's the picture. When God can see his own reflection in you, then that refining process is reaching its proper end. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We spend so much energy 
trying to get Christian people to witness to a lost world about Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe it's because we're not letting troubles do their proper work with us. Because once we look like Jesus, evangelism is a breeze. Well, maybe not a breeze, but it's certainly not as hard as it is overcoming those things in our lives that are impurities that don't look like Jesus. We're not trying to convince people to be like us. We're trying to convince them that they need him. But how we live and how we handle trials teaches them. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'll just ask you, what's going on in your life today? You come in here today and you got all kinds of trouble and maybe it's so intense that it's difficult for you to even focus in. How are you sleeping these days? Father, we pray that you would help us to own our part of this, wherever our part happens to fall. For those who are deeply hurting today, what I want to do is pray for relief for them, but the better prayer, I'm sure, is that you would have your way with them so that they can see what they need to grow. We do pray that they would find you in the midst of those struggles. Help us to get the right perspective on the trials of our lives and let you do your full work in them, in our lives. And so right now, Father, I pray that you'd move in the lives and the hearts of people, those who don't know you, that now would be that time that they recognize, I just gotta, I gotta figure out how to get in on what God has for me in life. That you'd draw them to yourself now. Minister to us and grow us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.